It is good to be together today. Uh, you know, kudos to all of you for being here this morning. Uh, we're holding bets on how many people are going to be at the second service because of the <laughs> playoff game today. But we're glad that you are here. And the exciting thing is God is here with us. And so it's always good to be together, as Tori said, as the family of God. We are wrapping up our uh, short three-part series in this new year on relationship, relationship IQ. We want to be people who relate smarter and not harder. Uh, As Christians, we believe that God has called us to love one another well, not only with our love, but with His love. And being smart about relationships, we've talked about, is the most practical way that we can live out our faith every day. That as we live out the greatest commandment that Jesus taught his disciples to love God and love one another, the way we do that is in our relationships with those God has given us to live life with. Unfortunately, we've acknowledged that too often we spend a lot less time being intentional about our relationships and being strategic about how we plan to grow and develop those most important uh, gifts that God has given us in our lives as we do with many of the other areas of our lives. And yet practicing healthy relationships, we've talked about, is a life lived, patterned after the self-giving love of God that was revealed in Jesus, that gives itself away on behalf of one another, on, on behalf of others. And Jesus called this kind of love friendship. He said, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And then we also talked about that no one has ever seen God, 1 John says, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. His love becomes real in us and we become a witness and a testimony to the love of God for one another. Biblically, godly friendship is the foundation of really all healthy relationship, of all marriages, and today we're even going to talk about how friendship is a part of God's family. Today, not only is the greatest commandment something that we live out in relationship, but I'd like to suggest to you a a little bit of a twist as well, that our relationships are the context in which we live out the Great Commission. If you remember the Great Commission, which is really the mission statement of the church, Jesus, in Matthew 28, as he was preparing to depart and go to heaven to be with his Father, told his disciples that they should go into all the world and and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that he had commanded them. And surely, he says, I am with you to the very end of the age. Now, we often talk in the church about this commission to go and to make disciples and to baptize people and to to teach them about the Bible and to teach them about Jesus and the Word. But I don't want to skip over that, that last important concept that Jesus says, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. If you think about it, We're just coming off the Christmas season where we celebrate the birth of Christ, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. And here at the end of his life, as he's leaving his disciples to carry on the mission that God had given him, he's reminding that that even though he isn't physically present with them, that he will be with them to the very end of the age. And we know that later in the story, through the Holy Spirit, God is present even with us now. In Jesus Christ, the passion of God for you 
and for me is revealed not only in his willingness to be with us physically in in coming to earth to to live a human life and to to die a human death and to be raised again on our behalf and to forgive us for our sins, to lay down his life for his friends. But it's in his ongoing fidelity, his ongoing faithfulness to be with us always as a result of this new life that he's invited us to experience in relationship with he and his heavenly father. And even as he commands us to go and to live our lives, to be uh, 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 lives that lay down our lives for others in his name, we are called also to be with one another. Biblically speaking, you could say it is God's faithfulness to us. It is God's fidelity to us in relationship that creates the capacity in us for us to be people of faith. If we're to love one another in the same way that God loves us, then fidelity and faithfulness is the foundation of our commitment to one another, not only as as church members and as friends, but as family, as parents, as children, as grandparents, as aunts, as uncles. Now, what does all this have to do with being smart about families? Well, I'd like to take some time to look at the larger context of the life that we live in this world and, and the, the family that we are, either as a church or in our own nuclear families, and, and the world in which we live, in which we have to make sense out of this love of God and how it relates to the way that we relate with one another. If you think about our contemporary culture, our culture offers little assurance these days to our children, to our teenagers, and even to us as adults that anything ever really lasts. Many people are saying that we have become a disposable society of planned obsolescence. Have you guys heard that term, planned obsolescence? If you think about it, you know, fashion changes every year or faster. If you don't have what's in or the right color or the, the, the right length of your skirt or, or the, the right buttons on your suit coat, you're out of fashion and you got to go out and buy a new suit. you got to buy a new wardrobe. And it changes so fast that we can hardly keep up with the fashion trends and what's latest and what's hip and what's cool. Or you think about automobiles. While lasting longer mechanically, they're specifically designed, did you know this, to within a few years look like they're out of date. So you're going to want to go out and buy a new one even though that they're going 200, even 300,000 miles in, you know, in, in the life of the car these days. Planned obsolescence is built into the very culture in which we live. Technology's rapid turnover makes your head spin, right? Do you have the iPhone 75 GXP241? If not, man, you're out of touch. Most people, they say, will have three to five different careers in the course of their lifetime today. About one-fifth of Americans move every year. That one blew me away. One, that's 20% of the United States in any given year is moving to a new city, to a new house, to a new job. Between 1970 and 2012, the number of children living in single-parent families went from 13% to 35%. As of 2012, 40% of married couples with children, families, in the United States are some form of blended family. By age 15, nearly one-third of all U.S. children experience relationships with two or more mothers or two or more fathers, either through marriage or cohabitation. Americans marry, divorce, and cohabitate more than any other Western society, and they also start and stop relationships quicker Statistically, 
Scientists are saying that the more different parental relationships that children have, the more challenging it is for them to make sense of their own identity and to be successful in life. Now, all of this is nothing new to us. This is the culture in which we live. This is, these are the families that we live in today. This describes who we are as a faith community in the United States in the 21st century. And yet in the midst of a disposable culture with planned obsolescence, the passion of God continues to break in through the love of Jesus Christ. God's passion for the world, this world that is disintegrating and breaking around us, to to call us to go into the world, to make disciples, to share this love of God that transforms the human heart from the inside out, that creates faith and faithfulness in relationship where there was none before. And his passion for us and for fidelity to us comes with Jesus' promise that no matter what your family experience has been, no matter what your experience is today, no matter what difficulties you're going through relationally, I am with you. You are not alone. And because of that love, we are adopted into the family of God and we can have a solid sense of worth and value And in in spite of whatever human relationships we have, and we can begin to turn around and breathe life back into those relationships with the love of God flowing through us. You see, the foundation of friendship and of marriage and even of family is the fidelity modeled and patterned of the love of God through Jesus Christ. This word fidelity, interestingly, is, is based on the Latin root of fide, which is faith. Fidelity is faithfulness. The essence of fidelity is a commitment to loyalty, to to stick with it through hard times, to, to do the hard work of making it work. And God's faithfulness to us is what creates the capacity for faith in us. God doesn't give up on us. Even though we live sinful lives and we turn our back on him and and we struggle to, to know how to love him and to love one another, God stays faithful to us. It's interesting how the world in science and psychology often teaches us that the Bible has gotten it right all along, isn't it? Developmental psychologists identify fidelity in relationships as the key that gives us the capacity to develop a solid sense of our own personal identity amid all the competing and contradictory value systems of the world. The reality is we cannot get taught fidelity. We have to experience it. We have to participate in it as a receiving partner and enter into it ourselves. Developmentally speaking, acquiring the capacity for fidelity in our own lives and our own relationships is dependent upon experiencing and receiving fidelity from others who are for us. Many young people today simply have not experienced enough fidelity in their relationships and in their culture on behalf of them to be able to learn how to acquire it for themselves. And nowhere is fidelity more important than in family relationships. Functionally, in many ways, I would suggest today that the adult world and even the adult world of church has pulled away from our children and has pulled away from our teenagers and kind of begun to treat them as a tribe unto themselves. We can see the results of this happening in our culture as we look at some of the challenges that adolescents have and and, and how difficult it is for them to navigate in this world. When communal fidelity is absent, young people activate mutant forms of community. 
Think about all the news stories you read about the rise of gangs and gang members. And as you, if you read, watch any of these documentaries on TV that talk about the inner workings of gangs, you, you begin to realize that gang members are often expected to be there for one another, even if it costs them their life. And that, uh, this adolescent passion of, of having something to die for. Oh, that's to die for. We use it as a, as a quip, as an expression, and yet underlying the passion of every student, of every child is, is there somebody who's willing to, to, to die for me? Am, am I worth dying for? Am I worth somebody investing their life in? And if there is no one that, that sees them as being worth that kind of love, then they look for true love, whether it's in the promise of the, the crips or the bloods in a gang or through a boyfriend or a girlfriend, if it doesn't come from their parents or from their church or, or, or from the people who are supposed to be loving them. You see, before we can hope or expect that our children and our teenagers will step up in faith and make that lifelong commitment to Jesus Christ and become people of character and joy and hope, someone else must first demonstrate that commitment to be there for them. Before adolescents and children can take seriously the gospel's claim that Jesus will always be with them, there needs to be a community of affirming faith that is there for them, demonstrating fidelity on their behalf. You see, and the Bible teaches that this kind of relationship, ideally, in God's design, starts at home. The Bible recognizes that family relationships can be difficult, but that the home base is the foundation, not only of church and friendship, and, but it's the foundation of society. We're going to look at a variety of different passages today to kind of understand this biblical perspective on how important family relationships are. Let's let's look quickly at Ephesians 6, uh, verses 1 through 4. Here the Apostle Paul is, is talking about what it means to be healthy church, and he goes back to the Ten Commandments. And he says, as you're, as you're doing relationships, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on earth. That's one of the Ten Commandments. And then he goes on to say, fathers or parents, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. See, already here, Paul's acknowledging family relationships are difficult. Children struggle to to respect and honor their parents. They have their own will. They have their own desire. They think they know what's right. And God wants our all children to know that respecting and honoring your parents is, is a part of how you learn and grow. Even if you think they're totally dead wrong, it doesn't mean you can't listen and obey. Someday you're going to be an adult and you can do it your own way. But right now, maybe just just possible that your parents have a little more wisdom and a little more experience. And maybe they know a little bit more than you think they do. And parents... You know, yeah, we're called to, to call our children to obedience. And, and sure, you know, they should do what we say simply because we've said to do it, right? I mean, we have that authority as parents. And yet we shouldn't exasperate our children. There, there should be some reasoning behind our rules. We should be able to respect and honor our children and, and give them the intellectual credit that they can understand that rules have a purpose, that it's not just because I said so. 
But it's because our, our rules, even going back to the Ten Commandments, were designed to teach us about who God is and what healthy living is about and how to be a good person so that we can experience the blessing of God in our lives. You see, many overwhelmed parents institute a bunch of rules and routines to try and get us through the day and the, the hectic busyness of our lives. But just having a bunch of do's and don'ts is more like policing than parenting. Having rules without telling our children what they mean in the context of our family and how they define what we want our family to be and to become and what we want our children to be and become leaves them feeling frustrated and uninspired by our rules and what they mean. See, we need to begin to get smart about how we do family. Let's turn to 1 Timothy, all the way in the back of your Bible in the New Testament. And here, here Paul is talking about the qualifications of Christian leadership. And what it means to, to be able to be qualified to lead others in the church. And it's interesting here that he acknowledges the foundation of family relationships in, in church as well. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, he says, Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires to a noble task. A, 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 somebody who desires to kind of oversee other people, to have some leadership, some authority. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunk, drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Do you see how most of these are relational qualifications? An overseer, a leader, somebody who's worthy of respect is a person who knows how to do relationship well and to lead others in doing relationship well. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And, again, here's this caveat, he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. It's not just about demanding obedience. It's about doing it in a loving way so that we're inspiring our children and not just demanding obedience from them. He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Ouch. (laughs) See, we're all called to be leaders. I don't know if you were here in our Journey of Faith series, but we talked about everyone in the call of Christ is called to be a leader in your sphere of influence. Not everyone's called to preach on the platform or to be a leader in an organization. But if, if you have kids, if you have friends, if you have coworkers that you are in relationship with, you're called to, to be a person of influence in their lives. And and if you are called to be a leader in that sense, God challenges each of us to be wise managers, wise stewards of the relationships that we've been given. And therefore, especially as parents, especially as grandparents, especially as aunts and uncles, or even spiritual parents and spiritual children, we need to be intentional about how we are stewarding and managing the relationships God's given us. See, today's culture teaches our kids to live for the moment, doesn't it? Live for today. Grab what you want. Focus on what what pleasure you can get. It focuses on selfish desires and cravings. It says very little about the kind of people that they should become. No one is inspiring and encouraging our children to become adults whose lives are marked by strong moral character and goodness and sacrificial love. In fact, our culture teaches them the exact opposite. We need to set the vision clearly for our kids and for our community And we can't just do that by following a set of rules. 
We need to thoughtfully connect our rules to the pattern of life that Jesus came to teach us and help them to see that pattern lived out in our daily relationships with one another. It's a mistake if we think that we can drop our kids off at church, if we can send our teenagers to youth group, and somehow the church is going to build into them faith. Because what the Bible is teaching us is that faith is primarily caught in loving relationships, family relationships that are there for them day in and day out. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament where Jesus was forming this first community of his people. Let's take a look briefly or quickly at Deuteronomy chapter 11. And in here, God is challenging the people of Israel to understand how they can continue to live within God's designed plan for them, to live in his blessing. And if they, if they don't understand this and they get off track, then he's warning them that, that they, they might be tempted to go away from the way that he's teaching them, not experience the blessing of life that he had intended for them to have. In chapter 11, verse 16, he says, Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will, not ye- will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land that the Lord is giving you. So what's the solution that God is giving him? Fix these words of mine in your hearts and in your minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down. And when you get up, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that the Lord swore to give your ancestors, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. You see, already back here in the very beginning of of the family of God, the the people of Israel, I think God is weaving in these seeds that that the the life that we live in God is lived in day-to-day relationship with one another as we go. That that call of God, of Jesus, to go and to make disciples of all nations, really that, that word go could be better translated as you are going. As you are going, make disciples of all nations. As you are going, talk about the word of God with your children. Talk about the word of God with your friends. As you're lying down, as you're getting up, you have to weave the truth of God's love into the context of our lives so that it becomes real and practically applicable to how our children understand we are designed to live as human beings. As long as we reserve the word of God and the things of God for a church building that exists on a corner, downtown Sumner, Somehow we allow them to think that somehow church is just one of those fashion accessories that for now it's in season, but you know, maybe when I'm in my 20s or when I'm in my 30s, I've been there, done that. It's kind of out of fashion now. And it's just one of those things that was a phase or a, a, a thing that we tried but never quite worked out. See, we learn about godly passion and godly faithfulness and fidelity by walking alongside others who teach us and model for us in their own lives what this relationship with God is all about. If our children never see in us any true connection and relationship with God other than doing Christian duties and rules, but we never talk about them and share our own faith and our own struggles and our own doubts and our own dialogue with God, and we never invite them into that conversation, we're never giving them a chance to catch faith 
themselves. Like all languages, the kingdom of vocabulary must be learned from someone who knows how to speak it. The most significant curriculum is the person who teaches, not the content of what they teach. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4.9 that we looked at last week in the context of marriage, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Are we practicing our faith every day in our relationships at home? Because there's no place that is more accessible and more readily applicable to live out the greatest commandments that God has given us, to love God and love one another, than in our daily relationships with our spouse and our children and those who we work with and, and eat with every day. See, the goal in raising children and in developing people as disciples is not to create good rule keepers, but rather to make good decision makers. Anybody can make a good rule keeper, but rules don't inspire beyond the completion of the rules. So often, parents get swamped by working in the family, the day-to-day chores and the responsibilities and the needs that need to be done, the cleaning and the feeding and the instruction and the, the karate and the music lessons and the soccer games. We get so busy doing family that we never spend time talking about with our children, what does it mean to be family? We get caught up in the tyranny of the urgent, and, and we don't have time to, to help them understand the greater truths of God's Word and how it applies to our relationships with one another. We do the same with our friendships, and even in our churches, we spend so much time doing things for God that we never spend time just being with God with one another. I'd like to suggest that if you're in a family that's over-busy and overtaxed and overburdened, maybe you need to get on the calendar a weekend where you, where you have a family powwow and you come together and you say, who are we as a family? What does it mean for us to be a family in, in God's kingdom? What are these rules that we've been talking about and all these things that we've been trying to do and how do those help us to, to see this larger vision for the kind of people God is calling us to be? As parents, why do we expect this of you as our children? Because our hope, our dream is that these will help you to grow, to be people of faith and to be people of of productive quality and goodness so that you can share the love that we have as a family with all those God might call to you. We need to give them a vision for how the love of God is designed to, to help them grow and develop into the people that God has created them to be. How many of our family dinners are spent in front of the TV clicking through different channel after channel. Sure, it's fun, it's, a, it's an escape, but how much of that time, TV time could be spent sharing what's going on? How was your day? I love, there's a, a pastor called Randy Frazee, and he wrote a book called Making Room for Life. And one of his critiques is that we've gotten so busy in our culture and so busy in our families that we don't have time, we don't have room to, to share life together. And so one of the things that they did is they, they made family time, the dinner time, family time. No TV, no distractions, and the only rule that they had was they could invite, the kids could invite anybody to come that they wanted to. They had an open table for dinner. And, and, the, and what they did is not only did they share a meal, but they simply went around and they said, what was your high from today and what was your low today? And they developed this pattern, this, this discipline. You could even say a spiritual discipline as a family of checking in. How's it going for you? 
What, what, what do you have to celebrate today? What was the struggle today? And he said it was amazing out of that discipline that as they did that over a number of years, they, their, their, their oldest daughter graduated, went away to school. And, and the, the most exciting thing that she wanted to do when she got to come back for Christmas break is she wanted to bring friends home from school so they could experience dinner <laughs> with her family. Family devotions. Are we spending time reading the Bible, thinking about God's Word, praying together, inviting God into the challenging experiences that our children are having at school and in their relationships there? Are your children experiencing bullying or challenges with popularity or feeling ostracized or left out or not being successful in the endeavors of sports or music or things they want to do? Are are we helping to have them invite God into those experiences? Isn't that what we challenge one another to do as adults? But how often do we divorce our family time and the things that we're talking about at home from the things that we would normally talk about if we were in a Bible study or in a small group or the things that as adults often we've learned how to do with one another. Have we allowed ourselves and our, and, and our kids to be so influenced by the hedonism of our culture that thinks about pleasure and recreation and having fun that, that we're not taking the opportunities to find ways to sacrificially serve others in Jesus' name as a family? Are we inviting those who we're friends with that we go to play with, whether we're in a nuclear family or a, a spiritual family, to, to have part of our identity is that we're called to go and do things sacrificially for others. So many times I think that we can help our children and our teenagers and even one another take our focus off of ourselves and our own dissatisfaction with what we have and with what we want in life by taking some time to recognize that there's so many people and so many needs. If we go out and serve a little, even together as a family, we can be teaching our children that there's so much more to life than just the latest fashion, technology, and Game Boys. The last thing I want to mention is time discussing and debriefing the culture in which we live. This is one of those things that often we don't realize is so important. Uh, I, I remember when I was in college, I, I took a class on viol- the effects of uh, TV on violence in children. And again, it was interesting how this study played out. They, they let different children watch uh, violent television programming, and they wanted to see if allowing children to watch violent television would create more violence in their behavior with other children. And so they had three different groups. They had children who watched violent television alone. They had children who watched t- violent television with their parents. And interestingly, neither one... Or no, I'm sorry. They had children who watched violent television alone and children who were not allowed to watch violent television at all. And and statistically, there was no difference between those two groups. The one group that was statistically different and showed marked improvement were those who were allowed to watch violent television, but then were asked to debrief it with their parents, to talk about with their parents. And what they found is being exposed to the violent content, but being able to talk it through and say, is that right or is that wrong? No, that's wrong. Is that good or it's bad? No, that's bad. Why, would we want to do that? No, we wouldn't want to do that. Well, why wouldn't we want to do that? Well, because God tells us that's not the way to do it, and this is how we should do it. Those are the children who were coached and trained through how to filter and understand the culture in which they live, were able to actually apply that in their lives, and had the least amount of violent tendencies in their own behavior with their children. 
I think too often we miss the, the understanding that our call as parents, our call as leaders in the church, our call as pastors and teachers, and even as evangelists, is to help people understand and debrief the culture in which we live. We live so much of our time so fast-paced, we just kind of accept all of the things that we're experiencing that fly by us in movies and in television and in magazines and in the check stands as we go through at, at the grocery store, that we never take time to, to talk about it and understand what is it that we're seeing and how should we feel about it? How should we interpret it? And if we don't take the time to do that, how can we expect our children or even our people who are new believers to the faith be able to learn how to do that themselves? See, when we practice our faith in the company of others, Jesus is revealed in those who will be there for us and in Christian community. This has been a a powerful series, I think, for me and I hope for you as we start this new year and we begin to look at the importance and value of getting smart about our relationships. If you were here on the first Sunday of the series, we talked about how gaining perspective on relationships is the first step in being able to apply the love of God in new ways. When you know what counts on the last day, you know what to begin to count every day. And we said that there are only two things the Bible said last forever, right? God's word and relationships. And so as we call ourselves, call one another to be people of faith, to go on this journey that Jesus has called us out on, to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of Jesus Christ and to teach them everything that he's commanded, to, to be a family of faith, Where do we live that out, and how do we find Jesus in the midst of our culture to serve him? I'd like to to close today by just looking at one of the teachings that Jesus taught as well. We're going to go to Matthew 25. And in the same idea where we asked ourselves, what is going to be important at the end of life? When it's all said and done, when it comes to the end of life and, and, and we stand before God, what, what is going to be important then? Well, it's going to be the ways that we've invested in the people that God has given us to love. Jesus is telling this story in, in chapter 25 where, where it's kind of a parable of uh, the sheep and the goats. And he's talking about how the, when the Son of Man comes, it's going to be like uh, a, a king standing up and separating sheep from goats. And, and if you remember the story, he's going to say, you know, all those who are, are sheep can, can come into heaven and those who are the goats are going to be separated out and they won't get to go to heaven. And how does he make that determination? I'm just going to read verses 37 through 40 today. You can go back and read the longer story and get the larger context. But, but then he says, the righteous will answer him. Those who identify as a sheep, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? See, because that, that's what determined their entrance into heaven. He says, the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. See, this is Jesus' test of faith for his disciples. Whatever you did 
For the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. And the, 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 James tells us, faith without works is dead. You see, God wants our faith to be a practical faith, that we're living out with the least of these. And who more is the least of these in our midst than our own children and our own teenagers who are lost and adrift in a chaotic and a crazy world? One of the people in our church in Phoenix a number of years ago said something that, that really caught me and it stuck with me. He said, so often we tell each other that we need to go out and we need to be Jesus for other people. And we have the love of God in us. We have the spirit of God. We have to go out and be Jesus for other people. And in some ways, I think that's true. In many ways, some of us are going to be the only Jesus that other people get to know. We may be the only Jesus that our children ever know. But in the same way, If we want to find God and have our relationship with God be inspired and vitalized, what we also have to realize is as we go out and we serve others, whether it's our children or it's people in prison or people who are hungry and homeless, we see Jesus in them. They are Jesus to us. And if we don't go with this kind of holier-than-thou, high-minded, I'm going to go be Jesus to them, but, but part of serving God is to serve the least of these and to serve our own children well, we discover a whole new vitality to our faith. And God's Spirit becomes present to us and in our relationships in a whole new way. We are called to go and make disciples of all nations. And we're called to start with our own family and our own children and our own friends right here in this room. We need to plan for it. We need to strategize. We need to be intentional about it. We need to get it on our calendars and block out our time. We need to be wise managers. Or how can we hope to lead God's people anywhere if we can't even lead one another? So our challenge in 2015 and beyond is to get smart about our families, to get smart about our marriages, to get smart about our friendships, and take our cue from the love of God In Jesus Christ, who gave his life sacrificially so that we could be God's friends. Would you pray with me? God, we do thank you that you have not left us alone, but you have promised to always be with us. Would you now, through the power of your Holy Spirit, empower us to love one another in the same way that you have loved us? Would you empower us with a a vision and and, and a capacity to love our children and to invite your spirit into our families, to live our lives daily, not as rule keepers, but as those who are inspired to become all that you have designed and created us to be. And God, as a faith community, would you allow us to have a vision to reconnect that which has been disintegrated in our culture, to have a fully and truly intergenerational faith community where those who have experienced brokenness in their own families, in their own relationships, can find spiritual parents and spiritual grandparents and aunts and uncles and friends to love them so that we can all learn about your love for us and that we can be a light in a dark world. And we will thank you and praise you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.